Welcome to another episode of The Wheat Profit, a podcast where we explore all things wheat. The goal of this podcast is to provide Saskatchewan wheat producers with resources and information to increase profitability and sustainability on their farm. I will be interviewing experts in the field about current production issues and the latest wheat research. Welcome to our first joint podcast episode. I'm Haley from Sask Wheat and the Wheat Profit Podcast. I'm Mitchell from Sask Barley and the Barley Bin Podcast. Guest today is Josh Laid, a farmer from Bosley, Saskatchewan. He grew up in Australia, which gives him a unique perspective on herbicide resistance. Australia is becoming known for the challenges with herbicide resistant weeds. Canada has growing herbicide resistant weed issues as well. Josh's background has led him to help adapt and prepare their farm for management of current and development of new herbicide resistant weeds. Josh came to Canada in 2010 on a farm exchange and later moved to Canada and started farming with the Weed family in 2013. Together they farm about 16,000 acres. Josh and the Weed family have been dealing with resistant wild oats for a few years now and have developed a pretty impressive management program including harvest weed seed control, patch targeted spraying, herbicide layering, and on-farm trials. Herbicide resistance is a growing issue across the prairies. One of the largest concerns for herbicide resistant is wild oats. According to the Herbicide Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee, approximately 69% of wild oats across the prairies display herbicide resistance. 62% of those to group one, 27% to groups one and two, and 34% to group two. We've got a lot of interesting things to cover today, so let's jump right in. Josh, welcome to our very first joint podcast of Sask Wheat's Wheat Profit and Sask Barley's Barley Bean Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to be with us here today. Yeah, you bet. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking to you. Um, why don't we jump right into some questions? Sounds good. All right. So can you tell us when you first saw herbicide resistance appear on your farm? Yeah, first time I really saw it on our farm here, just north of Saskatoon in Osla, was uh, back in the growing season of 2013. We seeded, it was after a few wet years, like 2010, 11, 12 were very wet for us, you know, in that 15 to 20 inches of rain, which I could only hope for today, considering we've had two inches so far this year. But um, yeah, we come through some really wet years, struggling to get herbicide applications made in those prior years to 2013, just being so wet. And we had a field of canola that we, it was clear field canola. Um, we seeded it. I remember going back to look at it after we had seeded, it was sort of coming up in that cotyledon two leaf stage, one leaf stage, and noticed just an absolute carpet of cereal grain, I thought, but it was actually wild oats. Like it was just gross from, it was a 300, 300 acre field and it was just from one side to the other. Being that it was uh, clear field canola, we, I knew we only had basically one shot with Aries to go in. So we thought, well, it's a bit early to go with the Aries considering we knew we we're going to have some broadleaf weeds come up later on. So we thought, well, let's just go with um, a shot of Centurion or a Clethidim. So that's what we did early on, sprayed that and come back 10 days later. And I was, couldn't believe it. I was quadding across on the motorbike and, and uh, just these patches of, you know, yellowing, dying wild oats and then just patches of, grass green just flying along had no no impact so yeah it was a hard lesson there to learn that we had some pretty serious group one resistance on that field and so that was the first time 
I'd really seen it here in Canada. Obviously, being a native Australian, I've seen it down there. So I was, yeah, it's quite an eye-opener uh, to see it in that sort of broad scale and just, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the odd little patch. It was, we're probably talking 100 acres or more on that field was just green with group one resistant wild oats. So yeah, that was that was my first experience noticing the herbicide resistance here, 2013 it was. So you've got a pretty unique insight into herbicide resistance from growing up in Australia. How has that shaped your experience here in Saskatchewan? Um, just to know that it's real. Remember early days here, I first come over here in 2009 and just talking with a couple of agronomists or farmers and it was, I don't know whether it was head in the sand or what, but it was, uh, it's not a problem here. We've got the frost, we've got winter, kills them all. Um, but yeah, obviously that's not the case. Otherwise we wouldn't be spending thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on chemistries trying to control these herbicide resistant weeds that is making their way across the Western prairies here. Um, so, yeah, just growing up with it, I remember as a kid, dad got us out of bed and said, hey, let's go and pull a few wild radish plants out of these lupins uh, because we couldn't really control them. And we knew that if they were going to set seed, it was going to be a gong show. So as a 10-year-old kid out in the field, trudging around the lupin crop, pulling pulling wild radish and putting it in a bag, that was, uh, yeah, so I knew it was pretty real growing up with it uh, and your ryegrass as well. As everyone knows about in Australia is a pretty pretty bad resistant weed down there. It's resistant to just about every chemistry they've got at some point. So just knowing that and just knowing what I know here is that, you know, we, for the most part, on our farm or a lot of farms across the prairies, we, we still have many good modes of action available to, to get a shot at these weeds. And so I guess, uh, yeah, just... I just, knowing what I grew up with in Australia, coming here, there wasn't a sit and wait approach as far as I was concerned. It was, let's get on this. Let's get these weed populations low now. Let's not wait until it's, you know, a big problem. You know, it was more, yeah, okay, we're going to have to spend 10, 15, 20 bucks an acre more in some cases. And it didn't seem justifiable because maybe the populations weren't big enough, but um it was just a no-brainer for me. It was just we just had to do it because I didn't want to see what I've seen in Australia. And also, I guess, back to that first question on this one field and how bad those wild oats wild oats were. Um, and in in retrospect, now we've really got that field under control. Like the full circle on that field now, we're actually back to Clearfield Canola again in 2021, and we we sprayed a grass spray out there, but it was just to get the volunteer barley from last year. We've really pulled that one under control, but that, it's cost us some money though. You know, we've, we're probably spending 15 to 20 bucks an acre more than, than the average guy to get that, that population down. It's worked. So, yeah. Sounds like you've got a really proactive philosophy for managing herbicide resistance. Yeah, I think we just have to be. We just have to be because it can just get away. You can just really get away from you. Um, just the way that these weeds can set so many seeds and yeah, you just, if you take your foot off the throttle, it, it just, it's just going to be a huge payback. You know, it's just hurts for years down the track. Well, it's impressive, you know, in an eight year time frame, bring the group one resistant wild oat on that one field back into a manageable position to be able to use that chemistry again. Yeah, Absolutely.
your first experience here was with group one resistant wild oats. Uh, what other herbicide resistant weed species have you been finding on your farm? Uh, kosher, group two resistant kosher is really, really worrying me. Um, just because of what's next. We know that there's glyphosate in Saskatchewan down south and I don't have any doubts in my mind. It's on our farm too. I just haven't looked hard enough, but just the way that that weed can set so many seeds and it grew. And in a year like this, we've actually got a brush mower going right now, just trying to go and smash down as many kosher patches as we can. But in a year like this, when our crop's struggling, the coast is just going crazy. <laughs> Puts that big tap root down and there's no doubt about it. It's going to fill its contracts of kosher seed. That's for sure. But um, yeah, just kosher was another one another one to actually i thought we had a bit more group two resistant cleavers but this year we've actually had some pretty good control just with solo on on our lentils holding back some some group two cleavers but yeah i, I would say the kosher group two kosher and and what's next with it is what's scaring me what, what's the next group it's only a matter of time just a quick follow-up josh uh, what about group two resistant wild oat You've seen any of those or anything resistant to both groups on your farm? Yeah, yeah, good point, Mitchell. Uh, we we have done some testing on some of our wild oak populations, and yeah, we are seeing starting to see 10, 20 percent of our wild oats are now resistant to group two. But it's funny when you do the testing because we still actually have we still do have good efficacy out of our group ones as well. Often we get the test back and we might see 50% of that population is resistant to group one. And in some cases up to 20% group two, but coupled with good herbicide layering, we're always on any of these problem fields are really trying to get a, a residual herbicide out to get that population down and then coupling it up with a, with an in-crop approach where even like, I'm not afraid. We use a lot of group one on our, on our cereals. Oh, sorry, on our uh, canola. It's just sort of a matter of fact, just really trying to make sure we get after those grass weeds in as many times as we can in those broadleaf type crops. Um, but yeah, so yeah, a little bit of group two resistant wild oats starting to creep in, which is obviously concerning. But the testing we've done too, I was concerned uh, just from hearing some research about the possibility that even some of these wild oat populations would have some carryover resistance to Avidex and trifluralin from the, the heavy use, say 15, 20 years ago, but we aren't seeing that on our farm. So that's good. We, we like to use a lot of trifluralin and Avidex in places. So, yeah. So what lab did you end up sending your uh, suspected resistance, resistant wild oats to? I don't have to check on that. I could let you know, but I forget now. Yeah, just curious. Like we're just looking for resources for producers, right? You know, if someone's struggling with the idea that they might have resistance and they're kind of looking to get it tested, um, there's obviously a few options. But I was just curious which one you guys used. Yeah, for sure. So in our case, we just went to our local Blair's uh, rep and and she handled it. But I know you just talk often. You can just go and talk to your uh, chemical reps. Often Bayer have a place they send them to. There's there's plenty of options. It's just a matter of picking up the phone and just phoning your your ag retail or or your chem rep, and it's pretty quick. Perfect. So you kind of alluded to it a bit um, with talking about group three and stuff like that. But can you tell us a bit about what practices you really had to adjust to manage the resistance on your farm? Yeah. So just 
talking more so about wild oats because it's probably the one weed that really scares me. Um, we really pushed a full prong residual approach. So in front of our canola, we like to get trifluralin out there. One has great efficacy on the wild oats, plus it also pulls back a few broadleaf weeds as well. So really like the trifluralin in front of our canola acres. And then when it comes to cereals, I guess our, you can do a bit of Avidex in front of your barley for, for sure, but I like using the peroxisulfones of the world um, just because they do have, you know, they're still got suppression of wild oats at 70-odd percent, but it just gives you a good value for money with the fact that there's quite a few broadleaf weeds on label there as well. So a lot of peroxys I find in front of our wheat um, and trifluralum in front of the canola. And obviously like to, you know, we patch manage a little bit as far as the Avidex is concerned to sort of put those on fields where, where the populations were bad. But now we're sort of getting to a point where our numbers are pretty low and we're not using too much Avidex, but just to turn back to that 2013 story, that field, for example, got Avidex. I think we did it two years in a row, actually. Um, just to really get that num those populations down to take the, the pressure off our in-crop chemistries. And it absolutely worked. You know, it worked brilliantly. So, yeah, where, where, where the populations are really bad, we've, on a wild oats, for example, I'd love to put Avidex down. It's just... It's uh, it works fantastic, yeah. So, yeah, more more the residual, making sure that we've got that a residual chemistry out in the fall or prior to seeding. I like the fall; just the snow melt often helps with activation, and the springs can be a bit hit and miss with activation because the soil residual herbicide is only as good as the, the rain it gets to activate. So I love getting these things out in fall, and then grow a good competitive crop as best you can on these fields and. And make sure you're in there nice and early with your in-crop to get any survivors and, and then back your crop in to out-compete. So for a competitive crop, are you increasing your seeding rates as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pushing our seeding rates on both wheat and barley. Um, I think too, you know, look at some wheat varieties as well. We often find that Brandon often jumps out of the ground for us and competes pretty well. We do play around with a couple of feed wheats and they just seem a bit slower, um, slower off the bat. And, you know, maybe those ones will potentially push the setting rate a bit more just to help with that crop competition. But on the barley side of things, like oh, I just love barley. You know, it. so many reasons. It, uh, it's just such a good competitive crop. I often joke about it being its own herbicide mode of action on its own, just with that ability to smother the ground, smother the weeds and, and, you know, we're, we're playing in the space of harvest weed seed control too. So barley fits that pretty well, just the fact that it's such a short crop, you know, we can get in there before a lot of these weeds might potentially shell out and, and get good efficacy out of our seed terminators. I love what you say about barley. I think it's great. It is a really competitive crop and, and uh, can be certainly used as a, as a weed management tool in and of itself. Um, I'd like to circle back a little bit to your um, 
your Avidex uh, application. You mentioned applying it in the fall, trying to get that good activation from the snow melt in the spring. Um, can you tell us about how you manage the Avidex in a, in a minimum till or zero till operation? Yeah, absolutely. I think the key is, is often the label says that, you know, you've got to incorporate it down to five centimeters or whatever, but I think that's just old research. Like, don't quote me on it, but this is just my feelings and what I've learned in Australia and here too. Um, the reason for it, I believe, is just to mix that, same with the trifluralins a bit, mix it into that, that weed zone. Because often back in the days when a lot of tillage was happening, we were mixing weed seeds into that top, you know, one to two inches where I find with our one pass seeding system, um, to me, you know, just try not to disturb them too much. Try not to bury these weeds. Try and keep them on the surface because if you can keep them on the surface, they just don't germinate. <laughs> You know, you're just using nature in its own there. Often they'll get enough moisture just to maybe spit out a little germ and then they dry off. Where if you incorporate it in the seed, and sorry, in the soil, it's kind of like when we seed a crop in it, that's what we want it to get it going. Um, so I, I really like Avidex, for example. I like the granular products, just less tie up on the stubble. Um, get them out in full. Get a light harrow just to get them incorporated a little bit just off, off the sun. Like I just don't want the sun breaking them down, right? But if you can do it late enough in fall, often very little incorporation needs to happen for the for the degrading of it all. Just just tickling in. As I said before, we don't want to, we don't want to incorporate too many weed seeds. Tickle it in. Good rates. I always make sure we use the absolute highest rate possible based on our soil zone and organic matter. That's where I think there's a real play for VRing these products based on organic matter, but that's another story. Um, and then when we seed with our minimum till seeding systems, often the weed seeds, let's just say they're spread out on the surface, but then we've got our herbicide layer that's now evenly spread out on the surface. And then we come through with our seeder. Just watch your seeding speeds because we don't want to throw too much soil into the interrows sorry, into the, into the neighbouring seed furrow. But then we end up with this really concentrated chemical and weed layer sort of in between the seed rows. And yeah, you kind of just imagine it that you've got your seed coming through and you're just throwing that soil between the two seed rows, uh, increasing the actual herbicide concentration in that seed row. And also that's where the weed seeds are. So yeah, I just, yeah, I like getting them out in the fall. Obviously, it's a pass that you don't have to worry about in spring then. The snow melt helps incorporate it, uh, helps uh, get it activated. And they're just there ready to go when the weeds are ready to go. Because sometimes in the spring, maybe the weeds have already germinated and you're already behind. You know, we don't want any weeds germinating because they, they're taking valuable moisture in and nutrients, especially on a dry year like this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that, uh, again, circling back, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, wild oats was the, the herbicide resistant weed that uh, you feared the most. Can I ask why uh, it stands out in your mind you, you compared to, perhaps to kosher? You think about kosher and its, it's uh, seed production is a really prolific seed producer and uh, certainly as a uh, plant biology uh, is such that it's going to develop uh, herbicide resistance uh, quite readily. 
what uh, what makes wild oats stand out to you just for the yeah what you were saying there um between the two weeds like wild oats and kosher like don't get me wrong i'm very scared of kosher i just find that in my experience kosher really just goes crazy in those poor producing areas of the field anyway often it's the alkali areas and and maybe we need to be doing something else in those spots. As soon as I often see, you know, kosher in the field, if it's it, it doesn't sit, tend to compete that well as far as I'm concerned. Um, if we've got a good good crop, canola, wheat, barley, even peas for that matter. I know I know like down south the kosher just runs rampant through the lentil fields, but maybe there needs to be more diversification there in the cropping system. I don't know, but where. To me, kosher just doesn't seem to compete that well when it's when it's in a good trying to compete in an established crop. But yeah, it's terrible in the in the lower areas where it's alkali and nothing else grows except kosher. Compared to wild oats, like wild oats will just grow everywhere, you know. And you, you've seen it. You drive past the field and you think you're seeing rows of kind of dark green wheat or barley or whatever, but then just this light green mat of wild oats just everywhere. So, and that's that's my sort of feeling there is that the wild oats can really take hold on everywhere in the field and in every crop. And the other thing too, just drawing back on my Australian experience, being that annual rye grass really brought the Australian farmers to their knees there with being resistant to just about every chemistry you can throw at it. And and wild oats also being a grass species, that really really scares me um, because you know I talked a bit about I mentioned harvest weed seed control before but that's really how Australian farmers have managed to bring annual ryegrass back under control and they've literally got full control of their farming systems again through harvest weed seed control but we know that annual ryegrass for the most part has pretty good seed retention so the time you get there at harvest time most of those seeds are still present on the plant but Everyone tells me here that I'm crazy looking at harvest weed seed control when it comes to wild oats. And maybe we are because they drop their seeds. There's sort of, so that's the thing, right? So then we, we have this grass wild oat species that maybe we're just, we're losing our chemistries one after another, but what options have we got here to control this? If we look at other places in the world where they're using harvest weed seed control to hot, to bring a, a grass weed under control, but we've got this problematic weed that's, dropping most of its seeds before we even get there with a harvester you know that, that scares me quite a bit but just on that i still feel that you know wild oats are kind of their own worst enemy as well if we can keep them in a patch and stop the spread with a the harvester then i still think it's a, a good play but yeah that that would be probably why wild oats scare me the most is just seeing what i've seen with annual ryegrass in australia and we've got this grass species here that's potentially could put us in the same boat but limited options down the track to control all right. Well, I have a question for you about patch management. You mentioned it a couple times there. Um, can you tell us how you're mapping those patches for management later? Yep. So with wild oats or any weeds, um, we're big fans of climate field view offered through the Bayer program. And that's why we've been using, we've been using that for roughly five years now. And uh, that's how we map these weeds. It's pretty quick and easy. It's just a, simple little function on there whether it's on your phone or ipad or whatever where we can just sort of create little field regions um so i yeah often whenever in the sprayer 
usually fungicide time I find is the best to to pick these weed patches up just because especially wild oats they start sticking up above the canopy and uh, that's how we're mapping these patches or when we're cruising across the field on our quad just just a lot of boots in the field I guess that's the best thing you know get don't crop check at 80Ks on the side of the road, you know. Get out there, get on your quad, grid your fields. And, yeah, so we're using a, a – there's so many platforms available, isn't there? There's so many options. You could even use Google Earth, for example. But just going – we're just mapping these zones. And the thing with the wild oats is that if we can – they often just reside in patches until we spread them with some tool, often the harvester – be the biggest culprit for spreading wild oats around a field but if we can keep these patches in their patches stop the spread and then really throw the book at these areas with as many chemistries as we can i think there's a real play to, to bring those wild oats under control not only bring them under control but also help with the cost of management as well so i know we had talked about this uh previously to the podcast a little bit but can you maybe give us a little bit of perspective on how much managing resistant wild oats has impacted your operation from a cost perspective yeah for sure it's probably added quite easily since 2013 up until now it's quite easily added about 10 bucks an acre 10 to 15 dollars an acre to our herbicide program um and we're a 16,000 acre farm so that starts adding up but i can honestly say that we we're really starting to pull back a bit. You know, we, we have invested in a full line of seed terminators as well on our harvesters. So I'm very confident that, you know, we're, we're almost eliminating that ability for our harvesters to spread weeds around our farm. So now we are, instead of doing broad acre sprays, you know, we're really, really focusing in now and just patch management as much as we can. So, you know, we, I really feel that, We've gone from being, you know, 10 to 15 bucks an acre more than the average guy maybe on a herbicide program to where I think now that we can start being 10 to 15 bucks less than the average. So, um, and I'm confident that we can do this, you know, it, but don't get me wrong. There's, there's a fair bit of money has gone into some combine attachments here to stop the spread of these problematic weeds. So in all honesty, a herbicide cost may not be any different, but we've got an integrated approach going at these weeds now and yeah, trying to diversify as much as we can. So you've uh, talked about a lot of different management strategies to manage uh, herbicide resistance. You'd mentioned uh, at one point uh, that you increase your seeding rate for both wheat and barley. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what kind of target plant stands you're looking for if you're, if you're just bumping the rates up. And, and maybe if you have comments too on row spacing, that would be, uh, I think, interesting. Resistance yeah, for sure. So we often, when it comes to wheat, we're basically as an industry standard, we've been pushing our wheat populations up to targets of say 30 to 35 plants per foot. Um, and it's, it's probably been less around actually herbicide resistance, but more about just trying to manage our fusarium problem, not trying to get more mainstem heads to, does this help with that fuzz timing spray? But it's, it's definitely helped with the, with the issue around, you know, getting good competitive crops to outcompete weeds. So yeah, on a wheat standpoint, that 30 to 35 um, and barley, 
similar sort of number, 28 to 30, we would be looking at. Um, and then row spacing as well. Like we, we're still trapped in that 12-inch row spacing based on our drill and trash management and all the rest, right? But like there's some pretty good anecdotal evidence out of Australia just looking at how reducing those row spacings down to seven or eight inch can really have a huge impact on dropping annual ryegrass seed set. So definitely something we would, we're looking at, like we really, really would like to narrow up our row spacings. Um, but yeah, we, we're not there yet. We, we, we try to intro seed as much as we can, you know, just, and try not to disturb the soil as little as we can too. So just by keeping, by keeping that stubble residue in between our, our crop, that also kind of acts as a bit of a buffer for weeds too. Like you don't often see too many weeds trying to grow through a, a fence line of stubble from the year prior. So I think that's helping us a little bit, but yeah, we'd love to, love to get down to a, a narrow row spacing and maybe that's going to come in the form of a disc drill, but we're playing around. We got a, we brought a disc drill this year and playing around with a single disc or double disc, sorry. Um, but yeah, we, we're not quite there yet, but I definitely think that that's definitely on the, on the cards for future drill purchases will be what can we do to get a narrow row spacing to, to help with the competition side of things for sure. Yeah. It seems like that makes a, uh big potential difference in terms of getting that crop canopy field in faster. Maybe there's some disease these issues that go along with that, but from a weed management perspective, we really get that this. So, uh, Josh, what advice would you give to a producer who has just received notice or has just suspected that they have uh, herbicide resistance uh, forms, particularly around wild oats? Where would they start? Um, first thing, just find out what sort of resistance levels you have to what chemistries. And even if you have something come back with a 20% level of resistance to say a group one or 50% to group two, don't, don't not use them. There's still a certain population now that's still susceptible to that chemistry. Uh, so just find out what chemistries you do have still available to your, in your toolbox. Um, if if you're noticing this, say, now, and you've still got a harvest coming up here, I would strongly encourage a person to harvest those patches separately and clean down your harvester when you're done. Like, Don't go spreading them to the next field. That's just low-hanging fruit. You know, At least just spend 10 minutes quickly. Go and, go and harvest the field. If you just got a few patches, suspect patches, go around them send one combine in there, go clean them up at the end and then blow that harvester off. Try not to spread these weeds to the next field. So it starts in the fall here and then map them out. But then I would, depending on what crop was seeded this year, but I'd really, really look at trying to grow a, a very competitive crop on those fields next year and make sure you get a soil residual herbicide down and make sure you've got a good, a good in-crop option as well, you know. And when I talk about it too, when we had these bad fields that were showing 20, 30% uh, resistant level to that group one graminicide, 
we still did an Avidex prior to canola and we or trifluralin. And we sprayed Liberty, but we know Liberty's not great on wild oats. We still put the group one in there and it still brings them under control. Like we still had good efficacy out of that. So I think for sure, make sure grow a competitive crop, make sure you get a serviceable herbicide out there and make sure you've got a good viable in crop option coming as well. And it's just that whole notion of layering, right? So just make sure you've got at least two active modes of action coming on those wild oats. Because as an industry, I feel like we do a very good job when it comes to, you know, tank mixing and having multiple modes of action against many of our problem broadleaf weeds. But I just don't quite see it when it comes to grass. You know, we have a lot of multiple modes of action out there, but when you actually look in that drum, often there's only one mode of action that's going after those wild oats. So that's where it's just critical to at least get that soil residual layer down. So you've got a good shot reducing that population, grow a good competitive crop, really, really target, you know, maybe 20, 30% extra on a, on a plant stand, depending on what crop you're growing, just get a higher, higher competition off the bat because it does, you see it every year, right? Wherever you got a drill miss, or your blocked head or whatever. It doesn't matter how many chemistries you throw at that spot. It's always weedy. Crop competition is king. You know, you've got to start with a good crop. Perfect. Well, that's some great advice that you've given us here to for the podcast. So, um, and some great information in this episode. So we're going to wrap uh, this first episode up here. We're going to have you back for episode two, which is going to focus um, more on harvest, uh, the seed terminator, sorry. And uh, so, yeah, we'll kind of wrap this up right here. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to talking to you in our next episode. No worries. Thanks, Hayley. Thanks, Mitchell. It's been good. Thank you for listening to Wheat Profit, brought to you by the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. For more information on wheat agronomy, marketing, advocacy, and research, please go to saskwheat.ca or follow us on Twitter where we are at saskwheat.